This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, Stories Behind the Story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell for the Better Reading Podcast, Stories Behind the Story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Well, hello, everybody. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast. We are in for a special treat today because we have an international author visiting us from New York City, AJ Finn. Now, I've just called you AJ Finn and your book, The Woman in the Window, has that name on the cover, but you have another name, which is Dan. So do you want me to call you AJ or Dan and how does that work? I answer to literally anything, no. but, uh, <laughs> but I think for purposes of, of this exchange, because we're now friends, Dan, please. Dan, yes, okay. Thank you. So I can call you the, just the writer of a Hollywood blockbuster and that you'll answer to that too. Oh, I like that. Yes, <laughs> please do that. All right. Now your book, The Woman in the Window, has obviously been a, a complete sensation, hmm. number one around the world, which is just amazing for you. It's your first novel, yes. but you have worked very closely with novelists. Yes, I worked in publishing for 10 years. Tell us about that. Yep. I started my publishing career in New York as a baby and... What's a baby? As a a 25-year-old. I'm 39 now, so 25 (laughs) sounds like a baby to me. And I had done my master's at Oxford, but knew that I did not want to go into academia at the time, I thought, oh, I'd like to work in literary fiction, which is what most young editors aspire to do. And it makes sense. They studied literary fiction. There were no jobs going in literary fiction. So I accepted a gig publishing crime and thriller. And this actually dovetailed way quite, more exciting. Way more exciting. <laughs> and it dovetailed quite nicely with my studies. I had focused on detective fiction at Oxford. So I spent two years doing that. No, no, slow down. You can focus on detective fiction at Oxford oh, yeah. University. Well, I was the first in the university's history to do that. That's extraordinary. It was fun. And then two years after I launched my publishing career, I put it aside to return to Oxford so that I could write my PhD on detective fiction. On detective fiction. Yep. Who is your favorite detective in fiction? Well, I, I focused on Patricia Highsmith, who wrote The Talented Mr. Ripley and Strangers on a Train. And what quite interested me and, and continues to interest and disturb me about Highsmith is that, as you're aware, the purpose of crime fiction since its inception in the 19th century was to be morally educative. When we start a a Sherlock Holmes story or an Agatha Christie novel or a Lee Child thriller, we know that by the end, the virtuous will be rewarded or redeemed, the guilty punished, and order and justice upheld or restored. These are the rules? These are the rules, but not so in Highsmith. She subverts all that and persuades us through some dark alchemy to root for a serial killer in the form of Tom Ripley. And that, to someone as constitutionally law-abiding as myself, is very (laughs) fascinating. In any event, after finishing my PhD, I reaffirmed for myself that I did not want to go into academia. It took me two tries to realize that. And so I joined a London publishing house, and there I worked with authors ranging from J.K. Rowling to Nicholas Sparks to the Agatha Christie estate, after which I moved to New York and continued to do the same. Wow, that's extraordinary. So you have read incredibly widely 
in the genre. In the and, genre. And yes. published in the genre yep. that you have now decided to make your debut in. Yes. Now I think I would be a little nervous if that was me. So you and you is that does that in part explain why you did it under a pseudonym? I, I had very specific reasons for writing under a pseudonym. First and foremost, because I worked in the industry, I knew my name would be known to most editors in the English speaking world. Right. And I did not wish for them to take that into consideration when evaluating the manuscript. I wanted no one to say, Oh, we know Dan and we like him. So let's buy his book or more likely we know Dan, we don't like him. Let's not buy his book. <laughs> I thought I would, uh, yeah, eliminate the authorship issue. The second reason was that I did not intend to leave my job. And indeed, I didn't leave my job for 15 months after selling the book. Why, this, why not? Because throughout my career, my 10 year career in publishing, I had routinely seen books acquired at great expense, as mine was, amid much fanfare, as mine was only to flop when they hit the market. And already in 2018, I could name half a dozen books that had met that exact fate. I did not wish to find myself without a career in front of me and with no career in the present. So I stuck around and had intended to do so in any case. I thought it would be disconcerting for the authors whom I published to walk into a bookshop and see their editor's name writ large across a paperback. And the third and probably most personal reason for electing to use a pseudonym is that I'm, I'm actually quite intensely private and did not wish to see my name everywhere. That said, as, as A.J. Finn, I can shift into another mode altogether. I can access a different dimension of my personality and, and be transparent and outgoing. That's so interesting. Well, it sounds I'm like multiple put, personality disorder. Right. <laughs> just a smidge. Yeah. I'm going to pick you up on a couple of things there that I thought were just fascinating. Do we know why mm. a book can be acquired at enormous expense mm -hmm. with great expectation and then completely fail to sell? I, I can speculate. The, the fun aspect of publishing, one of the fun aspects of publishing, is trying to guess where lightning will strike next. For example, who would have thought that a wordy Swedish political thriller starring a goth woman would have become an international sensation, yet Stieg Larsson pulled it off. Who would have thought that a, frankly, badly written slice of erotica would have taken the world by storm, yet Fifty Shades of Grey did it? Who would have thought that a novel about an agoraphobic former child psychologist would take off as my book has done? You never know. Equally, you never know what won't work. I think in my experience, sometimes people in publishing, which is, which is an industry concentrated in urban areas like Sydney, like London, like New York, tend to have blinders on and they don't always take into account what will appeal to those outside those metropolitan areas. Which may explain Fifty Shades of Grey, the book you just alluded to. I think it absolutely does. Yes, we, we underestimated the appeal of that book across the heartlands of these respective Tens nations. of millions of people Tens were, of millions. were ready for a little bit of erotica in their life, they a little were, excitement. I still am. But they were they were <laughs> underserved, and who would have thought? Who would have clocked it? Well, when you think about it mm. now, the fact that um, housewives across Australia, the United States, and the UK were underserviced is perhaps not a surprise. Uh, yes, it, it's a no-brainer now looking back. <laughs> but at the time, it, it, was, it was a shock, I think, to the industry. So you never know what's going to work. You never know what's not going to work. Sometimes the book can have everything going for it, but it just doesn't connect. And the other thing I wanted to pick you up on that I thought was fascinating about what you just said is you said you're shy. Yes. And yet you've had to go out and sell a book. It's tough. Is it? Yes, it is and, tough. And also some of the – and the main character in your book suffers from uh, what we would describe, I suppose, as mental health challenges. Yes. Right? Yes. And as part of uh, your promotion, you have said that you have had challenges of your own. Yep. Now, how do you reconcile having to talk about 
such intensely private things with your innate shyness? That's a really good question. First off, I should recap what I have said in the past about mental health. Please do. When I was 21 years old and I'm now 39, I was diagnosed with severe clinical depression. And for the next 15 years, I resorted to pretty much every treatment imaginable in combating it from... Including medication. Medication, to mm -hmm. meditation, to hypnotherapy, to electroconvulsive therapy, to ketamine oh, therapy. And nothing proved lastingly fruitful. And then three years ago, on my 36th birthday, I found myself in the office of a Russian psychiatrist, as one does. <laughs> Only in New York. New York <laughs> custom. And he grilled me for about an hour and a half before saying, look, I think you've been misdiagnosed. I don't think you've got depression. I think you've got a form of bipolar disorder. And I argued with him. I said, you know, I've seen Homeland and I've never gone full carry. And he said, no, I think you've got a form of bipolar wherein the lows are very low, but the highs are not as dizzying, not as manic. And so he took me off my old meds, wrapped me up on some new ones. And within about six weeks, I felt altogether restored, totally transformed. Since then, and having written a book about a character who struggles with mental health issues of her own, I have appreciated what a privilege it is. And also I would view it as a sort of incumbent responsibility to be able to speak, to make the most of my platform about mental health. It is a subject that in Australia, as elsewhere, oh, is yeah. under-discussed. Particularly, I would argue, amongst men, but women have higher rates, higher incidences of depression. It's important for them to participate in this conversation as well. Irrespective of one's sex, it is little understood, it is much stigmatized, and the best part of this entire adventure has been the opportunity to hear from readers who will approach me in person or online to say that they suffer from a mental health issue or someone they love does, and that, and at the risk of sanctifying myself, that they appreciate how it's portrayed honestly and ultimately optimistically in the book, and they appreciate watching someone who's enjoyed a measure of success take ownership of that issue. I, I, I'm living proof that you can struggle with serious mental health issues and still come out on top. And be successful. Yep. And we live, as you know, in the age of um, concern about cultural appropriation and also, I guess, about gender appropriation. I guess they yes. fit into the same category in a way. There's been a worldwide argument about mm -hmm. whether or not, I think sparked by Lionel Shriver, about yes. whether or not um, writers can step confidently into the shoes of a person of a different life experience. Now, your main character does have mental health challenges, mm -hmm. but she's also a woman she and you is. very definitely are not, I, Dan. I, 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 thank you for saying very definitely. <laughs> you definitely. So were you did this debate begin before you started writing? Was there a point at which you were concerned, well, goodness, people might say I have no business writing mm -hmm. from the perspective of a woman? People have said that, a, a few, sparingly, but they have said that. It never occurred to me that this would prove problematic, simply because much as reading is an act of empathy, and I believe very much that it is, it's an opportunity to commune with others, to put ourselves in their shoes, writing works much the same way. I think more male writers should write from female perspectives. Male writers are much more likely to enjoy favorable review coverage. In certain genres, they're much more likely to hit the bestseller lists. I think the very least we can do, especially in 2018, is to try to imagine what it would be like to write from a woman's perspective or to view the world from a woman's and perspective. It, and she reads like a woman. Good. I think as a woman, it. I can say that. She Excellent. does. She does. I'm happy to hear it. Now, tell me also about your, your path to publication. Was there any point at which, so were you acquired by your own publishing yes, house? Yes. And was there any point at which you had to fess up? Yes, both. So the book was submitted to publishers in September of 2016, and it was submitted under a pseudonym. My agent in her pitch letter had noted that 
AJ Finn worked in publishing, which obviously sparked a lot of interest. Guessing games. Who is commenced. it? Yes. Absolutely. Right. And as soon as publishers indicated interest and told us that they would be making offers, I outed myself. I wrote a letter to the interested parties, knowing it would be rapidly circulated throughout the industry, simply because I figured it was only fair that they should know what they were getting into. So my identity has not been a secret beyond the first couple days of submission. Okay. So, but you were quite keen, I guess. Um, and for matters of personal pride too, I imagine oh, God, yeah. that, that the manuscript be accepted <laughs> first. Yes. Totally. Right. Of yes. I, 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 it would be dishonest if I claimed I was not, you know, sensitive to the possibility that it would be rejected, which wouldn't have redounded very favorably to me. That would have been egg on my face, I think, a bit, working no, in the industry. No, I, I think no, because... Oh, oh, that's kind of you. Don't I think, I mean, the strike rate for first manuscripts is pretty low. Yes. I think you can write a first manuscript that goes nowhere and still maintain some professional pride in your achievement. I think you're right. At the same time, I didn't want my authors to know that I was on the sly writing a book and evidently finding myself frustrated with the process. Whereas... If I were able to say to them, look, I've written a book and it's been acquired, I think that that would make them feel oddly more comfortable. Like, okay, he's serious about this. It's actually going forward. Right. Yep. Yes. Okay. And and you acknowledge in, in The Woman in the Window a debt to Hitchcock. Oh, massive. Which I now understand a bit more about, given your, your background as well. Um, and in, in many ways, it does owe a debt to Rear Window, doesn't it? Massive, so, yes. So tell me about your decision to tip your hat in his direction. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. I grew up down the block from an art house cinema and every weekend would camp out in the front row because the managers were hosting Hitchcock marathons or film noir retrospectives or classic movie nights. What and I, a childhood. Oh, I steeped myself in all of it. I remember a formative 24 hours. One night when I was 16, I watched the Wes Craven horror film Scream. And I'm not a slasher aficionado. I think as slasher films go, that one's probably pretty good. Have you seen it? I don't think I have. Keep it that way. In the (laughs) opening sequence, it's skillfully done, not my cup of tea. In the opening sequence, Drew Barrymore's character is butchered. We see her viscera exposed. It is disgusting. And I remember watching this thinking, I'm not scared. I'm just repulsed. The very next night, for the first time, I watched Psycho. And there is no explicit violence in Psycho, not even in the infamous 52-shot shower sequence. We never see a blade puncture flesh. It's Very all suggestion. Very different kettle of fish. It, absolutely. terrifying. Terrifying all the same more so. And I think Hitchcock and his peers understood that the mind is a much darker and more dramatic playground for our fears than anything they could project onto the screen. I wanted to write a story that evoked the same 
timelessness, the same sophistication, the same restraint. It is a story that I hope recognizes and affirms the value of of suggestion. So there's very little explicit violence in the woman in that's the window. That's so true. That's so true. And yet that's the first time I've realized that because mm. I was very scared. Good. That's that's the idea. And that's what you were aiming for. Without resorting to cheap tricks or shock tactics. I tried to avoid those. And also at around around the time you were writing, mm-hmm. and I guess certainly now that you're published, there was what's been described as a wave of books. Yeah. With the, with the girl on the train, gone girl, and then you've got the woman in the window. Were you... Did you feel well? This is a bit unfair because I was writing this before. <laughs> oh, or did, and did you and did you feel like people will say, "Oh, I'm just jumping on a bandwagon"? That's a really good question. So I'll, I'll fess up. I hadn't aspired to write a book. I was perfectly happy in my job, for one thing. But more importantly, I didn't have a story. And over the course of my career, my decade in publishing, I'd learned to recognize it when an author was cashing in or writing a copycat novel. And there's nothing automatically disqualifying about such novels. I remember after Fifty Shades of Grey was published, I was flooded with erotic novel submissions. And some of them were not bad. Some of them were not bad. Others, I thought, okay, you clearly wrote this so you can smash and grab, so that you can ride the train. But Fair enough. So Gone Girl was published in 2012. And prior to that, the market had been dominated by serial killer thrillers by the likes of James Patterson and, right. and Jeffrey Deaver. And I enjoy a good serial killer thriller, but I certainly didn't have one in me. I'm so pleased yeah. to hear it, that. I, yes, it's a, I will not be serial murdering anyone in oh, Sydney good. or elsewhere. What I loved were psychological thrillers, what we now term psychological thrillers, a la Patricia Highsmith, whom I'd studied by this point. So when Gone Girl was published, I thought, aha, there is a, a an appetite for this sort of book. Man, I wish I had a story to tell, but I didn't. Years passed, The Girl on the Train was published and attained juggernaut status. Again, I thought, ooh, I wish I had a story. I didn't. And it wasn't until almost a year later that this character strode into my brain. Anna. Yes. So to those who would suggest that I bandwagon, I, I say, well, look, if I were bandwagoning, I would have started a long time ago. <laughs> this genre has been in vogue since 2012. Now, I want to talk to you a little bit about Anna Fox, who is your your protagonist, your your main character. She's a recluse. Yes. And I'm wondering, did you know she's? It's very real how she lives in her own head, and also I'm in glad that, you think so. in in that small space mm-hmm. as well, and and her estrangement from people who have tried to love her mm-hmm. and tried to understand her. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wondered, is that based on somebody in your life, or is she entirely imagined? She is not entirely imagined. She and I have quite a lot in common. Some some relatively superficial inflection. She speaks French. I speak better French. I play chess. She plays better chess. <laughs> we have a similar sense of humor, I think, and we both love classic films. That said, there are some key distinctions. She's a woman. I'm a man. She has a family. I do not. But the most important commonality. You must have a family of some kind. I, I, got I happen parents to know you're in town with your mother. This is true. My mother, my mother would, would, yeah, not approve of me having said that. That said, our most important link is our struggle with mental health. And there were times, although I never suffered from full blown agoraphobia, when during my depression or depressive stages, I felt unable to prize myself from bed, let alone leave the house. And the the most insidious and evil aspect of depression or any sort of depressive illness is that you reject the very practices that would improve you. And you know you're doing so. So when feeling low, I'd think to myself, I know if I just got up and exercised, I would feel better. It's the last thing you want to do. Or I know if I pick up the phone when my friend is ringing, I will feel improved. You cannot bring yourself to do it. 
And that's, I guess, the etymology, or if not the etymology, the, the, if we unpack the word depression, you're, you're pressed. You're pressed Absolutely. down to the ground. Yes, and you, can't, you are low. You can't rise. You can't elevate yourself. And in some ways that, that, that is her. But also she has a child and her husband has custody of the child. Yes. And we have a lot of female listeners and a lot of them are mothers. And I think for me that would be a near impossible burden to bear. Yes. The daily estrangement from your child. Yes. Um, how did you go about channeling your emotion for her into that arrangement or environment for her? In creating this character, I, I started with her mental health issues. I didn't know what had driven her to that point. It seemed to me that for someone to withdraw from the world as she has done, something genuinely traumatic must have befallen her, such as estrangement from one's family. So that provided a point of entry into this character. Not having children of my own, I, I can't quite imagine what it's like. Oh, you have imagined it. Uh, but but th- you I, I did my best. Good. I'm so pleased to hear that. Thank you. I can't imagine. I, I mean, to me, that was the, the biggest burden of all. Um, and what's interesting too is, um, she says something about, so, so I, I won't, I don't want to give away too much of sure. the plot and I, and we don't like spoilers at all here at Better Reading, but she sees something mm-hmm. and she does, uh, mention it to, to people. She yes. does report it as it, as it were, but no one, um, believes her. Mm-hmm. And I think, and in, and in New York and all around the world now, we're seeing women speaking up and they are being believed. Yes. So are we seeing a kind of change in the, in the acceptance of A, women's voices, but also the voices of people who might perhaps be a little, what we, we would regard as unstable or, or other? Yes. You've anticipated two points I was going to be so pleased to make. Oh, yes, please so, do. So, yeah, please yes. Do. No, no, no. You've stolen no, those, the thunder. I, but I mean, all those <laughs> ideas of paranoia of yes. women and the gaslighting of women and the, the belittling of women, you've, You've, you've taken on all of those challenges in this book. What, what I've struck, well, thank you. And what I've, what I sought to express in this novel, amongst other considerations, was the idea that just because someone suffers from a mental health issue does not mean they cannot usefully contribute to society, does not mean that they are worthless, does not mean they have nothing to offer. Similarly, although I started writing this book before the Me Too movement erupted, I like to think that readers could readily identify with a woman who herself has been dissuaded or disbelieved or summarily dismissed, as so many women have been in the past. And yet we're now seeing that that's right, that their voices are now not only being heard but believed. But believed. Although it's so complex because many questions are still to be answered about what can we truly believe. Yes. And And, yes. And how will the world look after this great reckoning. And the final point I would make on, on this issue is that I've been frustrated by perceptions and representations of women in fiction, particularly popular fiction. So often women are, even, even, and especially those in, in leading roles are portrayed as reactive or powerless. They spend all their time fretting about men or obsessing over men or predicating their emotional welfare on men or waiting to be rescued by men. And in my experience, most women are not like that. <laughs> Most women can outwit men, can certainly manage men, and yet you wouldn't know it reading certain popular novels. I sought in this book to create a female character who, although a mess and a mess of her own making, is not a damsel in distress. Over the course of this book, she identifies an inquiry, pursues an investigation, tests her limits, all without the help of a man, or indeed without the help of anyone, and that's why she is a woman in a window, not a girl. And... 
You mentioned earlier today that, uh, sorry, earlier in our podcast today that you've, you've now quit your day job. Yes. And as I understand it, this book, um, Woman in the Window will become a film. Yes. But you're not writing the screenplay. I am not. No. So why, why not? I mean, you obviously have great, um, felicity with words. Oh, and, that's, uh, <laughs> see, yeah. How was that for felicity <laughs> with words? I just snorted. Uh, Fox, the studio who have been tremendously accommodating, did ask me to write the script. I declined because I had a day job. I needed to promote the first book. I needed to write my second book. And most importantly, because I'd never written a script before. And this is a major movie, not an opportunity for me to try something new. The film started production. Already? Uh, yes. So yeah. do you have actors and actresses you can talk to us oh, about? Oh, gosh, I can talk about everything. Yes. Okay, uh, the, please do. The lead role is being played by Amy Adams, whom I met a couple weeks ago. Wow. She was lovely. And I got to watch her in action as Anna Fox. It was thrilling. That must be extraordinary. And what did she... Did you look at her and think, yes, yes, yes that's Anna, really? Yep, yes. Fox did say to me, whom do you want to see in the lead role? And I said, Amy Adams. That, that was your first that choice? That was my first and really only choice. And why do you, like, because I guess I did, I mean, when I, as a reader, mm-hmm. you bring your own idea sure. of what somebody might look like. Yep. And I don't know that Anna would have been, but then I would think of Australian actresses straight away, I guess. I, I could see Kate Blanchett pulling it off or... Ah. or Margot Robbie, maybe. So here's the thing. I I think she's a terrific actress. I was very insistent that they not cast someone younger than 40. Okay. Uh, not that, not that actresses are spoiled for choice in Hollywood, but there are more roles going for women in their 20s. And And she is, she has been married. She does have a child. So she has to be a certain age, doesn't she? That's that's my feeling. So Amy Adams to me has the necessary relatability and warmth to bring this sometimes frustrating character to life. And she's, Supported by Julianne Moore and Gary Oldman, wow. amongst others. And the film is directed by Joe Wright, an Englishman who made Darkest Hour, which just won Gary Oldman his Best Actor Oscar, and Atonement and Pride and Prejudice. And the screenwriter is a Pulitzer-winning playwright. I don't have a Pulitzer yet. Yes, yet. no, but that's because you de- <laughs> because you declined to write the script. And what guarantees, if any, can they give you about their um, faithfulness to the work, to the creative? output that you have produced? Good question. None, technically. (laughs) But I wouldn't really want that. I don't feel remotely protective of or precious about the material. I I don't want to see a literal version of the book on screen. That would be redundant. The story, as I've told it, exists on the page. I want the filmmakers to bring their own vision to it. Although I would imagine that they haven't wanted to make the film because they don't like the story. You're One absolutely assumes right. that they like the story. Yes, you're absolutely right. Also, given the caliber of the talent involved, I'm sure they'll do fine. And look, I loved it. Thank um, you so much. AJ or Dan or whoever you would like, you or, like. Or Hollywood blockbuster creator. <laughs> That's the best. It has been such a pleasure to have you on the Better Readings podcast. Welcome to Sydney. Thank I hope you. you have a wonderful time. Thanks so much. Okay, you take care. Bye-bye. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere. Or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBook Store. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape 
imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.